Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of West Obsessed, where the writers and editors of High Country News discuss issues crucial to the health of the American West. In today's episode, we're going to be discussing the harassment and abuse of women who work to protect public lands across the West. I'm Brian Calvert, the managing editor of High Country News, and I'm here with correspondent Krista Langlois. Hi, Krista. Hey, Brian. And with our editorial intern, Lindsay Gilpin. Welcome, hey. Lindsay. Hey, Brian. Uh, you've both been investigating this issue, and we'll talk about some really specific cases in a minute. But first, I want to talk about why I think this is such an important issue. I mean, the public lands are arguably the West's most precious resource. We have a billion acres of forests, mountains, and even huge swaths of sagebrush prairie, depending on what you love about the West. And we rely on a bunch of agencies to help protect them. So it's been pretty... Uh, disconcerting to learn that women in public lands agencies are often harassed or abused by their male colleagues. Um, it makes their job a lot harder. Um, it makes protecting our public lands uh, a lot harder for them and, and basically diminishes, I think, um, some of the quality and beauty of the public lands. Uh, that's kind of the stuff that we love about it. So, um, And it's not just uh, isolated incidents. It happens across different agencies. It happens across sort of the spectrum of the levels of employment. Um, and it can be really difficult for women to find any kind of security or recourse or response. We've been investigating this a bunch. And one of the first stories that we're coming out with in this investigation is in our latest issue. Um, that was you, Krista. You reported on women in one of the public land's most macho subcultures, I, I'd say, uh, and that is wildland firefighting. So maybe you can kind of walk us through a little bit of how you started reporting this story, because we've been looking at this for a long time, and it's all kind of starting to come together now. But how did it start? Sure. So in the fall of 2014, a group of seven women filed a class action complaint against the U.S. Forest Service. This is in Region 5, which covers all of California, Hawaii, and the Pacific Islands. Um, and 47% of wildland firefighters work there. And these seven women, they were later joined by one more. They took the first steps to filing what they imagine will soon become a class action lawsuit. And the lawsuit, or the complaint rather, alleges uh, that discrimination, harassment, retaliation, and even sexual abuse are not uncommon in that region. And what kind of discrimination do um, do women face? Um, you know, it really runs the gamut. So some of it is really subtle. I talked to female firefighters who said that they worked with men who would take orders from other men but wouldn't take orders from them. I talked with female firefighters who said guys would just like take tools out of their hands because they thought they could do a better job themselves. So some of it is more subtle like that, and some of it becomes more egregious. So one of the women in the complaint says that one of her supervisors, her male supervisors, followed her into the bathroom, groped her repeatedly, uh, poked her breasts with a letter opener, and there are other women who have stories of attempted rape and other women still who are not necessarily part of the complaint who say that they know of women who were raped while on the job. 
Right. And so explain this a little bit more, because this is sort of um, this is wildland firefighting. So these folks are far, far from um, kind of civilization in a way. Um, what kind of environments are they working in um, sometimes when they're out on a fire, for example? Yeah. So when they're out on a fire, some of them are on helicopter crews. So they rappel into remote areas. There's not cell phone service. There's not necessarily a landline that they can pick up and call and say, hey, somebody just did this to me. Um, and from what I gathered, the majority of incidents weren't necessarily happening while they were on the front lines of a fire because there's a lot of things going on then. It's more when they are um, training or at government housing, which can still be fairly remote and cell phone service still often doesn't work or there's no internet access or something like that. Um, and these women are often alone in these environments. So women, it, the Forest Service does a really poor job of keeping track of exactly how many female firefighters there are. Um, but they do keep track of permanent hires and women make up only about 12% of the Forest Service's permanent uh, firefighting positions. So this can be a pretty hostile environment for them. If they're typically one woman on a crew or it's not, um, it's just not easy out there, right? Yeah, exactly. They, they might be the only woman for miles uh, and they don't have somebody else to talk to, to confide in or even to kind of be on their side. And it's not just um, limited to the Forest Service and wildland firefighting, right? So we've been looking into other agencies. You know, the public lands are managed mostly by the federal government. They are what make the West what it is. That's our national forests. That's the uh, Bureau of Land Management and also the National Park Service. Lindsay, you've been looking into the Park Service. Kind of walk us through what happened originally uh, in January that kind of put us on um, this this part of the story. Yeah, in, so in January, the Department of Interior released a report um, from the Office of Inspector General that documented 15 years, at least, of sexual harassment in the Grand Canyon's river district. So that's the river unit down in, like a mile deep in the canyon that oversees kind of resource management and science trips. Um, so basically, it documented scientists, rangers, and other employees, females that would go out on these river trips with boatmen. And they're still called boatmen for some reason, even in 2016. Um, so these women go out on trips with boatmen, and they're very isolated, you know, out for it from three days to a month at a time. And they, you know, might, might do trail maintenance, might do um, kind of soil management, things like that. And on these trips, they, the Department of the Interior found that these women experienced, much like Krista was saying, you know, things as subtle as comment, like lewd comments or um, kind of you can't get on this boat and keeping food from women uh, because they um, were retaliating against them uh, for, you know, just being on the trip in general, all the way up to, you know, groping and um, exposing themselves to women or trying to jump in their tents at night, things like that. So this report documented that, and um, it, it also found that many of the Park Service managers knew about this for a really long time. Um, it went all the way up to the regional office, the Intermountain Regional Office, and um, especially one 
the regional director, Sue Massica, knew, um, knew about it before she even started her job. So uh, it, along with just the harassment and discrimination that women were facing, it showed that the Park Service has long known that this is a problem and has failed to recognize it. Yeah, and I think we'll talk about some of the responses here in a second. But, you know, I just want to say that, like, I think one of the terrible things about this story is that out here on these public lands, we have a chance for people to sort of connect to the natural world in some kind of terrific way and rare way. And this kind of behavior to me seems to block off half of our population from this kind of thing. Um, Krista, you spent time with some women firefighters who were going through a kind of camp or a training. Did they seem like the kind of people who were motivated to protect this kind of um, resource that we have? Or, you know, how, what were they what were they like? And tell us a little bit about that training. Yeah. So in the spring of 2015, I went down to Albuquerque, New Mexico to attend what's called the Women in Wildfire Boot Camp. And it's a it's essentially just basic firefighter training that is uh, tailored for all women to try to encourage more women to get involved in wildfire because it is so heavily male dominated. And, you know, the Forest Service recognizes that and they want to recruit more qualified women Um, and also to give women sort of a supportive place to get started and to build support networks among the women who do continue on to pursue careers in wildfire. So I went down to uh, a weekend. It's a five-day training, and I was there for two days. And they did a... uh, some some train you know they were they were doing drills they were doing push-ups they were hiking they were carrying tools they were learning how to use radios and signal mirrors and that sort of thing um and as for the women who were there most of them were new mexico residents they were i would say mostly in their 20s although there were also women in their 30s and early 40s as well and they were very motivated. Nobody seemed daunted by the idea of going into a male-dominated field or of being the only woman on their crew. Um, they were there for a variety of reasons. Some of them uh, had wanted to be firefighters since they were little kids. Some of them were like, well, I dropped out of college and my uncle's a firefighter and it sounded cool. Um, some of them really loved wildlife and thought that they were doing things to protect public lands and wildlife. So they had a variety of reasons for being out there. Um, and, and to every single one of them was motivated and excited. Was there a sense among the women that they were heading into um, what could be some uh, serious discrimination? Was that sort of overtly talked about or did, uh, did that not come up? That didn't really come up at all, to be honest. Uh-huh. So they're, they're focused on training, and once they're in the door, then they all have kind of like a yeah, network of people that they can call on and, and, and mentors. These women who are heading into firefighting um, right. or even going down into the Grand Canyon, you know, it feels like they're, they're young, idealistic people that want to do something good. And it just makes me mad that they're heading into this really precarious situations. And I'm just wondering how aware of it they are beforehand or whether or not as this terrible thing happens to a woman um, in the Forest Service or in the National Park Service or any of the public land agencies, this horrible thing happens. And then they start to learn that they are a part of a huge problem. They're inside this uh, community of women who have like survived or gone through this kind of thing. 
Um, so, I, um, Krista first, like, do you have do you have a, a sense of that that they kind of knew what they're getting into, or what? Uh, yeah, I have two responses to that. Mm-hmm. First is that I don't think any of them at the boot camp, at least, which was last year before a lot of this broke in the media, and I don't think that the women in the boot camp were at all aware that they could be going into a potentially discriminating or threatening environment. Uh, And that's one of the criticisms of these boot camps, actually. The the boot camps were started in New Mexico by a former firefighter named Becky Livingston, and the model has since spread to California and Utah. And one of the women in California, who is a part of the lawsuit, she she has a criticism of the boot camps there specifically because they seem to be less about the support network and more about just recruiting more women. And her criticism is that it doesn't make any sense to try to build up women's ranks and bring more women in without cause it without fixing the root causes of the problems that are making them leave or making them uncomfortable to begin with. So why are you recruiting? more women if you're not fixing the problems that make it so hard for them to stay in the agency in the first place. Right. So that's the, that's my first response. Um, and then the second thing that I'd really like to point out is that the majority of women who do go into wildland firefighting, I think, have very positive experiences. So it's not like every woman who decides to be a wildland firefighter is harassed or discriminated against or sexually assaulted. Uh, I think that's still a minority of the women uh, who are out there. And the fact of the matter is that that kind of stuff happens everywhere. And there's often a system in place to deal with it. And the real problem in the Forest Service and other public land agencies is that that system has broken down. So um you know many women who go into wildland firefighting have really positive experiences they don't experience those things and i think that's something that needs to be pointed out do you think that inside of that the male colleagues of these firefighters is there a changing attitude that is um improving that situation as well yeah i mean I, it's it's hard to tell i think it just varies widely from crew to crew i did talk to a number of men for this story and I tried reaching out to some of the men who have been accused of sexual harassment or assault, and none of them responded to my requests. So I think that the guys I was able to talk to were kind of the good guys, and they were very aware that this kind of thing happens, and they were also very aware of making sure that it didn't happen under their watch. I think that is good to point out. Uh, You know, we have started an investigation following some of these things that we learned about the Grand Canyon because what happened was we ran a story online and then put a tip form out for people to um, write in their experiences. And Lindsay, you've really been on the receiving end of that. In that form, how many responses have we gotten so far from um, women in public lands agencies? We've probably gotten at least 40 or 50, I would say. And some we've gotten some calls just to the office from people that um, just wanted to share their story. Some don't want to be named at all and just send in a form and others tell every detail and names and, you know, parks and everything. But it's been from every every public land, you know, BLM, Forest Service, uh, Park Service, Fish and Wildlife. So 
it's kind of interesting to to see how widespread it is. Yeah, I think that's a really uh, important point. I think it's important to point out that this isn't constant, but that it is pretty common. Lindsay, why don't you talk a little bit more about what you're finding inside of these um, uh, correspondences or phone calls from um, women who have survived this kind of discrimination? I think one of the most interesting things from this tip form especially is that it, you know, so many women have responded, whether a lot of them are retired or have been in the park service or forest service or whatever for, you know, a couple decades. And it's, it's almost like now that they are reading these stories and they're looking back, you know, they've had this amazing experience in these public land agencies, but they're looking back and being like, oh, oh, that was harassment or that was inappropriate. Um, I shouldn't have accepted that when I was 20 years old and I didn't know any better because I just wanted to do really well and move up the ranks. And um, I think that's that's been really important, um, like Krista said, to point out that like, all these women, like their disclaimers are, I love the Park Service. I love this mission. That's why I can't leave. You know, I don't want to leave. And, and some of them have left and they've had to because of these experiences and they've been run out because they've had no other option to, um, you know, to report things or press charges or whatever it is. But I think it's pretty incredible to see how many of them are using this as an outlet and kind of reflecting back on the problems that they've faced throughout their careers. Yeah, and the other thing I thought that was interesting that we were finding is um, how devastating it can be to a woman um, to report or to make a complaint. Or maybe you could talk about that, Lindsay. So really, I think women are faced with a couple of choices when they have something like this happen to them. You know, I mean, they can not say anything and just put up with it, which is what a lot of them do. Or they can, uh, technically you're supposed to file an equal employment opportunity complaint. Um, and so you file that with your, you have to do it with your direct supervisor, and then it kind of goes up the chain of command. Um, and you can, it eventually, like Chris said, can end up in a lawsuit or it some a lot of the times it just falls through the cracks like it goes up the the chain of command and gets to the regional office and just falls away because no one really wants to I mean what they don't it doesn't result in any disciplinary action it just results in maybe money or moving to a different park or something like that so I think that has been um, at least from what I've heard from many women is that that's the hardest part of the whole process is you either lose your career path that you've been heading down or you just put up with it and maybe eventually quit anyway. And so it's kind of a you know, catch-22. Uh, if you're just joining us, you're listening to West Obsessed. This is where writers and editors of High Country News discuss issues that are important to the American West. I'm Brian Calvert. I'm the managing editor of High Country News. I'm here with our editorial intern, Lindsay Gilpin, and our correspondent, Krista Langlois. Um, Krista, why don't you talk a little bit about the system for women in terms of when they do report um, how does it go f in the wildland firefighting world? What is the sort of repercussions or sort of recourse for women? Very similar to what Lindsay was just talking about. So a woman is supposed to file a complaint either directly with the Equal Employment Opportunity Office, which is in Washington, D.C., or with uh, her direct supervisor. And again, a lot of these women are in remote places where you know, maybe if her supervisor is the perpetrator, who is she supposed to tell? It's really hard to get out to the EEOC office. Um, and training for women doesn't really prepare them for what to do. So every 
every incoming federal employee gets about an hour long civil rights training that many women told me is inadequate uh, or is sometimes treated as a joke. And this training doesn't really prepare them uh, to deal with the Forest Service bureaucracy that they are forced to deal with when they want to report something or when they need, when they need to report uh, something like harassment or discrimination. So they, if, if they do figure out how to file a complaint, then just like Lindsay said, it just gets sort of swallowed by this huge bureaucracy. And uh, most of the time, more than half of the time, are, are not dealt with within the time frame required by law, which is 180 days for the USDA. And sometimes just completely disappears or falls, falls through the cracks entirely. Has the Forest Service done anything um, directly to address this problem in, in um, recent years? So back, this is... If this current complaint becomes a lawsuit, it will not be the first lawsuit. And after lawsuits were filed in the 1990s, there was a special commission that oversaw the complaint process and made sure that complaints were handled in a more timely manner. But that commission went away in 2006. So there have been steps taken in the past, but they haven't been lasting. Wait, wait, what do you mean it went away? Uh, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> that commission... Uh, the terms of that agreement ended in 2006. So in 2006, it was like, okay, yeah, we got it. Yeah, pretty much. There had been these overseers making sure that they did things correctly. And then the terms of the agreement ended and the special commission that was overseeing the process was like, hey, you guys got this now. Has anyone ever lost their job as a result of these complaints that you know of? I don't know specific names, supposedly. I spoke with a Forest Service spokesman who told me that as a result of of being convicted, I suppose, of, of uh, harassment or abuse or discrimination that an employee would face. But just like Lindsay said, so many women I talked to said that that hardly ever happens, that men are often just shifted to another region or another crew or sometimes they even quit and then get hired on by another agency. And so what's the timeline we're looking on in this potential lawsuit? When would what what's moving there and when what can we expect to see out of that? <laughs> I don't know. The lawsuit is moving incredibly slowly. Uh I don't really have a time frame. Okay, so it's not we're not like looking for December or some kind of justice. You know, uh well it could become a lawsuit by December, but I really have no idea. Nobody knows. Uh -huh. And Lindsay, you've been sort of following this um, since January. There's been some movement, at least in the National Park Service. What was the process there following this, the Department of Interior's Office of Investigating General, this, this sort of report, kind of what happened after that? So the Intermountain Regional Office had to outline basically a response to the OIG report. And um, they did that. They had 90 days, and they did it in, like, 92 or something. Um, and so after that, they, they outlined a series of items that were, you know, some of them were banning drinking and making everyone wear uniforms on river trips to uh, finding disciplinary action towards the, the administrators that knew that this was going on for that many years. So they had deadlines from April all the way till October of this year. And then the kind of surprisingly, the Grand Canyon superintendent 
abolished the river district completely like about a month ago and that was very strange only because it didn't really they they just moved around all the employees to other areas of the park and didn't fire anybody that was accused or an alleged perpetrator and then um you know that kind of puts a a strain on the rest of the employees to deal with the river Hmm. after that and then after that the uh the superintendent retired which was effective today actually and so on june 1st so uh, he was given a choice to either take a job in Washington, D.C. Uh, with director John Jarvis or retire. And so he chose to retire. So I'm not really sure what's going to happen at the Grand Canyon in particular. But the uh, the director of the Park Service says that they're going to survey the entire agency to find out if this is a widespread problem. Uh, that was after a push from a couple of members of Congress really angry about this uh this whole issue and why nothing's being done. So, so this is moving. We're keeping an eye on it. Um, you know, we're gonna we're we're gonna keep investigating. We're gonna um, try to figure out the scope of this because um, it is really hard to tell. Um, so, you know, if um, if people want to report, they can go to our website. That's hcn.org. They can find a tip form there to talk about some of these problems. Um, it's it's confidential, and um, you know, then we will get back to them. Um, but uh, we're also asking for uh, just both men and women to send in their experiences. Let us know what this is like, and uh, eventually we'd want to try to have a, a sit down with folks and figure out some ways forward, like how to how to improve this system. That's all the time we have for uh, today. Uh, I've been talking with High Country News correspondent Crystal Langlois and editorial intern Lindsay Gilpin. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Brian. For West Obsessed, I'm Brian Calvert, the managing editor of High Country News. Uh, Thanks for listening. Mm